Good afternoon to all of you, those that are here in the sanctuary. Welcome, thank you for coming. And also those that are in the air, in your homes, on, in every place that you have chosen to see this uh, presentation and all the other presentations, wonderful presentations that we have been having here at this virtual, <laughs> first time I suppose, virtual camp meeting. Uh, the issue that we will be dealing with in this seminar is the unity of the church. Actually, Pastor Kelly asked me to give a seminar on the relationship of Adventism with the evangelical community. I have written some things about it, and uh, as I thought on how to integrate all these ideas together, and to be the benefit for the church, I thought that perhaps we should concentrate some time thinking on the unity of the church. And that is the title of our uh, seminar. Uh, the seminar includes, uh, uh, the seminar will explore the unity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church from the perspective of our denominational history as well as from the broader context of Christian theological systems. Uh, the outline of the seminar includes five presentations. First, a question, unity. Are we united? Uh, are we really united or not? And since this is an issue that is more than theological, I think that all of us have experienced one way or the other the unity of the church. And all of us have an understanding that is not biblically derived, but is derived from our experience in the community. And I have a long experience with the community, as you will soon uh, discover. And I thought that perhaps, as I share my personal uh, kind of stumbling on issues and situations, you could, in a sense, identify with some of them and uh, at least know where I am coming from. And through the wonderful help of the Holy Spirit, you could get some pointers to uh, be more proactive in uh, helping the church to come to unity. So that's the first presentation. The second presentation will be to bring you through the history of Adventism at some silent points, salient points, where uh, things began to change and develop. And that will be very important for us to understand our common experience, our common history as a people since we began or came into existence. Then I will go and explain some of, what, some of what I consider to be the causes that are behind either the unity of the church or uh, of the disunity of the church. You know that we cannot speak about one without the other because this is a... Uh, reality in living development. Then the, on Thursday, I will share some 
views of the history of our brethren Christians that are not Adventists uh, in an attempt to let you see that many of the things that we are experiencing in the church that are dividing us are coming from outside the church, not from inside the church. And finally, on Friday, I will give you my take on what we can do to actually uh, promote the unity and uh, kind of put the accelerator on the mission of the church, because that's what it's all about. And that's exactly the first point that, first point that I would like to share with you. Before going to some questions, I will uh, ask you to uh, pray with me to the Lord for his presence once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the freedom that you give us. Thank you for the technology that allows us to be in communication even in these times. And I pray in a special way that you will help us through your spirit in the presentation and in the meditation that will be guided by your word, by our experiences, and also by your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Some questions to have in mind. First, is Adventism a church or a denomination? We just talk about us both. Is there a difference? You will kind of make your mind about it as we go along in our presentations. Then the other main questions, why are there so many churches? I mean, there should be only one church, but there are so many churches. Why is that so? And then is the Seventh-day Adventist Church the only true church or not? Are there other churches, visible church? Think about it. Now, I want to start with a quotation from Christ and then another quotation from Ellen G. White. I think that we should be clear that Jesus Christ and God wants his church to be one. And this is a uh, quotation, what you have on the screens, from John 17, 20 to 23. This is a portion of a, a prayer, the priestly prayer of Jesus to his Father before he will go to the cross. So I think that this is a very important thing that Jesus has in mind that specifically is asking his Father. And he asks, and I am quoting only those those verses uh, for the sake of brevity, I ask not only on behalf of this, the disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. And I think that that includes every Christian, including us today, now. So this is what Jesus prayed for all Christians, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are into to that. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. Again, repeating the same concept of unity and uh, giving us the model of unism because they say this is what God wants, so we have to be one. And he has a project to make the Christian church one. So we, what are we going to do about it? The project is there. Okay, keep that in mind. But then uh, I want to over, uh, underline that he says that we should be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So this is this element of mission there. So we are one, and the oneness is the condition of mission. Let me move you to a quotation from Ellen G. White. This is the quotation. I am just showing that to you so that you see that it is a, you know, a, a paragraph that I have chosen to divide in four points because I think that Ellen G. White is making four very important points. One is the mission of the church. Second is the eschatological mission. Uh, yeah, I... This is the, the quotation. So, the first part is the mission of the church. The second is the eschatological mission. And then it will be coming the issue of unity and then the issue of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. See how she sees the connection between these points. She says... God has a church on earth who are lifting up the downtrodden law and presenting to the world the Lamb of God that taketh the, away the sins of the world. This is the mission of the church. What church? The church that uplift the downtrodden law. What church is that? Seventh-day Adventists. There is no other church. The other churches are uplifting the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We do both the law and the gospel. This is the mission of the church. And yet, she goes forward, and she says, the church is the depository of the wealth of the riches of the grace of Christ. And through the church, eventually, through the church, eventually, will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened by, with His glory. I see there Revelation 18.1. This is the angel, the angel that we are supposed to be as the instruments to share the light of his glory to the entire world. And then she moves to say, the prayer of Christ, the prayer that we were just reading from, the prayer of Christ that his church may be one as he was one with his father, will finally be answered. Eventually, we are not, they were not completely un united back then in times of Ellen G. White, but she see into the future, she tells us that eventually will be answered. And then she adds, the rich dowry of the Holy Spirit will be given when the dowry of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain, will be given when we finally answer the prayer to unity. So the Holy Spirit will be given and through its constant supply to the people of God, they will become witnesses in the world of the power of God unto salvation. So forward to the finish requires the unity of the church because the unity of the church is the cause of the power of the Holy Spirit for the final mission to enlighten the world with the glory of the gospel of Christ. You see, as a church, we pray for the Holy Spirit, but do nothing about unity. And it is because of this is the situation that I perceive is that we are going to be exploring the issue of unity. What can we do about unity so that the Holy Spirit could come, so that the message could be shared and so that we'll be really there in the finish line.
Okay. So, my personal testimony. Now we come to the beginning of the first presentation. Uh, I was born in Cordoba, Argentina, 13 days after the end of World War II. As a child, I thought all wars had ended. After all, you know, the World War has ended, and people had to know that this was not the way. That's what I thought. Of course, I was completely wrong. As a, uh, the city where I was living, I want you to notice that, was 99% Catholic. I think that the only non-Catholic that existed there were the 100 people that belonged to the Adventist church where I was attended. The great number of Roman Catholic churches, actually I didn't see any other church than Roman Catholic churches all through my first years of life until I was 15 years old other than the Seventh-day Adventist church. Those two guys, you know them, I am not going to talk about them, but they were kind of leaders back then when I was born. My father was Elio Canale of an Italian ancestry, my mother Nelly Block of a German ancestry. Elio was a medical doctor, a child prodigy in uh, piano playing. Uh, he was a concert pianist, but he was a secularized Catholic. He was not an Adventist. My mother was a third-generation Adventist, his father was a pastor, grandfather, grandfather was a pastor, but she was not very faithful, was she? She shouldn't have married my father. But then I wouldn't have been here. So I don't know. <laughs> those are those things that happen. My father was a very good father, very good father. My mother was a very good mother. When I hear others talking about their homes, I just can say I was the person with the best, best possible home. Uh, of course, it would have been much better if my father was Adventist. I, I suppose so. But that was the reality. But my father, good as he was, allowed my mother to teach me uh, into the Adventist religion. He did not press Catholicism on me. Yet, <sighs> well, this is the church where I was born. Uh, I mean, I was not born in the church, but actually kind of I was going to this church since I was a baby, 15 years old. Would you believe it? This looks exactly the same that 70 years ago, 74 years ago, when I began going to this church. Uh, I attended for 15 years all Sabbath and Wednesdays night prayer meetings. I was baptized at 12 years old. As I reflect on those things, I... Mm, I, sorry about that. I think that I went on the other. There is the church. Sorry. I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> uh, that's the church. And uh, my mother and the church taught me everything about the Bible and Ellen G. White and what we believed and this what they believed. But uh, I was baptized as a cultural Adventist. 12 years old, they say, well, the time has come, you, you, you should, you know everything, and so I was baptized. Uh, my experience was secular. I didn't go to Adventist school, secular school, secular Catholic culture, secular Catholic family culture. I was very close to the Canalis. Uh, I, you know, they were uh, two of my... Uh, uncles live uh, a walking distance, so I was playing all the time uh, during the week with my non-Adventist cousin, my not-Adventist friends, so I was very familiar with non-Adventists. I was not born in an Adventist ghetto. 
according to my father, I was going to be a pianist, as he was, he thought, and a medical doctor, as he was. I was very happy with the medical doctor, at least I didn't have anything against that, but not so much with the pianist side. I didn't inherit what he had. Now, my understanding of the church unity in those five first, uh, I'm sorry, 15 first years of my life. Clearly, there were two churches. One on the side of my father, the Roman Catholic Church. Most of the people, all the people that I know, other than a hundred people, were Catholics. Then there was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I knew that we were a cult. This is what they call us. We are a cult. When I hear you Americans, well, no, we are a cult. But I don't care. We are a cult. It's no problem. Why? Because we are a cult because we follow the Bible. And I clearly understood back then why we were Adventists. We are following the Bible, all in the Bible. The Catholics, they follow tradition and not the Bible. Tradition contradicts the Bible. Obviously, you don't need to be, you see, a rocket scientist to learn that if you want to follow Christ, you cannot be a Catholic because they follow tradition. Protestantism didn't exist for me. 15 years old, Protestantism, Evangelicalism, for you existed, right? Not for me. I didn't know anything about them. Okay, so I became a teena uh, teenager, and I went my first two years of the academy, I went to North Adventist uh, institutions in my home uh, city. Uh, Montserrat it was a college uh, run by priests, and then the other one, Carbo College, it was a secular um, Catholic, but lay Catholic institution. And in 1960, I moved to boarding school at River Plate College, mostly for social reasons. I didn't have many friends that were Adventists, and going to a boarding school allowed me to have a lot of friends all the time. I wanted to go there. And so I asked my father, and my father says, you can go, but you will come back after you finish the academy to your hometown to study uh, medical school. My, my formation still was being shaped by my mother and by my church and then by my teachers. One thing that I had in my experience is everybody that was an Adventist said the same thing. The same thing. What do you eat? The same thing. What do you wear? The same thing. What do you believe? The same thing. Everybody believed the same thing. I consider that to be very important for the unity of the church. Uh, sorry, let me see here. So there is only one true church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and Protestantism was not existent. But at the end of my academy, some things began to happen. At 17 years old, while I was, I don't know, in the fourth or the fifth years of the academy, my, my father decided to go with another woman and marry another woman and separate from my mother, and that was a very 
traumatic thing, the first traumatic thing that I had in my life. Of course, to me, that was easily explained because my father was not an Adventist, so he is supposed to do bad things, you see, because he's not an Adventist. So they do bad things, so that was not unexpected. Uh, it was not expected either. But I wanted to, uh, kind of in my life, that was not a very good thing, so I wanted to, uh, that out of it something good would come, basically. And in church I have heard Romans 8:28. we know that all things were together for the good of those that love God, so I thought, what in the world is going to come good for my life in this situation? And my idea was, now I can do what my father said that I could not do. And that was to stay in the college to study after academy. But, alas, what could I study in that college? Only for pastor or administrator in the church. Those were the only two things that I could continue to study there. So administration, I didn't like. It was very boring. And I didn't have any calling for, the, for being a minister. But I thought, okay, I will do that. I... I Ask for advice to my professors, and my professor said, okay, you can do it, the call will come. And so I believed them, and I started studying theology. And so the theological studies came, and for the first time I started studying SDA theology. I, for the first time, studied reading the Bible because it was assigned to me to read for the classes. I was an Adventist, but I didn't read the Bible. I believe everything because I was told I was a cultural Adventist. Remember that. First time studying Daniel and Revelation, and then two things came to shape my idea of the church or to develop it uh, in a uh, different direction. First, it was a paper that I had to do on the origin of evil in Ellen G. White, and that struck me as a complete revelation because for the first time, somebody with, was... Uh, explaining to me how things were connected in the Bible. Satan does that, Jesus does the other because of that. And, you know, if you have read Ellen G. White on that, it was kind of helped me to start connecting everything because after that point, I knew things that were told to me, but they were all disconnected in my mind. I considered them all coming from God, and they were all good, but they didn't make a whole picture. Now I was able to begin to see an entire picture. And then I took a class on systematic theology. That uh, course was given by a professor that still is living here, uh, retired of course, a great MD, a master of divinity. Imagine somebody that mastered the divinity of God. I mean, it, it was more for me back then than a doctor in theology. We, I didn't know that there were any doctors in theology, but that's another story. Uh, this professor taught me systematic theology, and he did something that I hadn't experienced first. And this is, they, he gave us a book on systematic theology to read, and this book had been written by an evangelical. Well, what are the evangelicals? The evangelicals are people like the Adventists that they believe in the Bible and not in tradition. I said, they are on our side. We are on their side. Because remember, my family and all my culture were Catholics based in traditions. And these guys were for the Bible and not for tradition. Wow, I like that. But then the professor said, but 
you have to be careful about the interpretation of prophecy, the Sabbath, the immortality of the soul, all these things, they are not like we are. And so, I began to develop my understanding of the church, the Adventist church. At the same time, my father, that was not only disappointed at me studying theology, remember, he was not an Adventist, and his son was not, not only not studying for medical doctor, but he was studying to become a minister in a sect that nobody knew, literally. So he cannot brag about his son. And so one day he tells me, almost literally, you want to be an Adventist pastor because you have a spiritual nature and your mother taught you Adventism since you were a child. If you would have been born in China, you would have become a Buddhist monk. I think that he said that only once. But I thought to myself, my father is right. I am there. Remember, I am studying theology to become a minister. So what my father did, the Holy Spirit through my father was to wake me up to the responsibility that I had to make a decision for myself. This is about my life. I cannot allow my father, not my culture, not my mother, not the church where I went to rule what I am going to be. So I started making use of what I was being taught by the teachers in the School of Theology to answer for myself some questions. Should I be a believer in God or an atheist? <laughs> I had to start from, from the bottom. I mean, if I had been indoctrinated into Adventism, perhaps I was also been indoctrinated in Christianity and even in uh, believing in God. So, well, I wrestled with that and I arrived to the conclusion that the evidence is more for the existence of God for the non-existence of God. But then what religion? Should I be a monk, <laughs> as my father suggested, a Muslim? And alas, I was attending to a class of comparative religions. This is a very good professor, gave a lot of information about all the big religions in the world. So I was able to compare, take decisions, and at the end I say, hey, if there is going to be a God, the God must be like the one in the Bible. I mean, it is a much of a God. I mean, the others cannot do anything. I mean, they cannot even move. So, but this God is doing things. He did the universe is coming again, knows me, can help me. Hey, this is a better God than any other God of any of the other religions. So I decided that. And then why not to be an evangelical? You see, I mean, not to be a Catholic clearly because of the Bible. But why not to be an evangelical? And one of the issues were some doctrines. You see, the difference that I thought that they existed between evangelicals and Adventists are just a few more doctrines. They have all the law, but not the Sabbath. We have the Sabbath. So 
One of the things that I had to deal with were all these arguments for the evangelicals, and I took all these arguments of the evangelicals against the Sabbath from Canwright. I don't know whether you know about Canwright, but that, that was one of the first Adventists that was a very faithful Adventist. Then he recanted, and then he began to argue against us, and he published a little book that was translated into Spanish, and I was wrestling with Canwright to learn whether he was right or not so that I will go the way of Canwright to the evangelicals, or I will remain, remain in Adventism. And I remain in Adventism, as you can see. I am not going to give you all the details. So there is one true church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. But we share most of our theology with the evangelicals. And we are the true church only because we have a few doctors more than they have. You understand what I am saying? So there are few differences, but most of Christianity are in the evangelicals but we are claiming to be the only true church only because we have a few doctrines, or so I believe. You have to continue attending my seminar to see how this ends up. So, uh, and then came a completely unexpected experience, and that is philosophy in my life. Of all things, philosophy. So, I graduated from theology and got married in November 1966. I felt too young to be a pastor, not feeling the call yet. How in the world I am going to be the leader of guys that were the double, the triple of my age, going there and helping them in their marriage problems. And when they died, I didn't see myself going there. And so I was not feeling the call yet. And I went for advice to Dr. Fimeister, who eventually became the dean of the seminary. I think that he retired as dean of the seminary and recently passed away. And he uh, steered me into the teaching of theology, vocation. And, well, can go into details there. Providentially, this very same institution, River Plate College, launched a new study program on education, psychology, and philosophy, which basically meant another four years of study. So I have finished academy, gone to theology school. We don't have college like we have college here. Once that you finish the academy, you go to medical school. You finish the academy, you go to law school. So when you finish academy, you go to the seminary, basically. Four years of study, just theology, nothing else. And they started another program of four years on education, psychology, and philosophy. And I thought I am going to go there because of education and psychology could help me a lot as I will eventually become a pastor or a teacher. I didn't expect that, I mean, out of the four years, two years, two solid years, were only on philosophy. Most of the people hated that. They were there for psychology, on one, only one year on psychology, or education, only one year on education. And nobody wanted philosophy. I didn't expect philosophy. I wanted because of, uh, to take that program because of uh, psychology and education. But I was attracted to philosophy. What did I learn? What I did learn in philosophy was the secret formula of Babylon wine. I didn't know that back then. 
I kind of enter into the Platonic system, the Aristotelian system, the Kantian system, the Hegelian system, all these things that are coherent were of great attraction to me and to be able to understand what these guys were saying. But all these ideas I later learn are used by the Roman Catholic Church and the evangelicals to interpret the Bible and to construct the doctrines of theology. Uh, sorry, I think that I went. Yeah. Then I began to work. When I finished the four years of philosophy, I thought that I was going to stay there teaching philosophy. But God closed all the doors and sent me as a Bible intern to Montevideo, Uruguay, one, uh, one year there. Then I went to Nueva Alvesia, a district there in Uruguay as a district pastor, 72, 73. That's where Sylvia, that is here, was born. <laughs> yeah, in that time. And 74, we came back to... I, we came back to River Plate College and I became a professor of philosophy for five years, 25 hours a week teaching only philosophy, philosophy, philosophy to philosopher students. That's what I did. I think that no other person in the Seventh-day Adventist Church has gone through that experience, probably, or very few. Uh, <clears throat> at the time, I was arriving to my 30s, and I thought that I needed to become a doctor, but uh, the doctor in theology was supposed to come here. I needed money. I have my family. I didn't have money. I needed a scholarship. The scholarship were given only to people that are trustworthy in theology, and I was studying philosophy. And by definition, I was specialist in the work of the devil, and I was not trustworthy to actually teach philosophy. And so I went to develop, uh, I mean, to study at that time in a Catholic institution to become a doctor in philosophy. When I was studying that, two things happened. In October 1978, I was preparing myself to uh, give final examinations on a philosophical course, and I received unexpectedly a scholarship for the, from the South American division to come here to Andrews, all expenses paid, all tuition paid, everything paid, coming here, I had to be here in January next year. So I had like two months and a half to do everything, even finishing my, my courses in philosophy there. When I was studying that course right before coming here, I was, I came to a re realization. I was studying the interpretation of the f first uh, philosophers in Greece from the viewpoint of one of the last philosophies in the 20th century, and this philosopher said something like following, Greeks have understood reality as timeless, which means static that it does not move. But they were wrong because reality is historical and moves. And I was there studying, I still remember this, and there is something in me that clicked and I said, I now know another reason why we are different from the Catholics. 
Because I knew back then, after studying like 10 years of philosophy, that they understood all reality as static. But I knew that the Bible and Ellen G. White understand everything as history. Two different ways of arranging the pie of Christian, of Christian teachings and the Bible. So that was just before I came here to study. Okay. When I came here, still I had this conviction that we are the true church because we are grounded in the Bible and the evangelicals are not the true church because they don't have a few doctrines. Besides that, reality is not timeless, but historical. I was studying here from 79 to 83. That was me in uh, the moment of graduation. But as a student, oh, sorry, I am, <laughs> there it is. I am there in the moment of graduation. And I discovered when I was a student many different uh, cracks in the unity of the church. Coming a Sabbath afternoon meeting that was reporting on the aftermath aftermath of Glacier View sanctuary meetings that uh, condemned the interpretation of Dr. Ford, Desmond Ford, I overheard some perplexed students saying, if this is true, meaning Ford was wrong, what do we believe? They came obviously because of the accent from Australia. And I thought to myself, what we always believe because Ford was wrong. This is what they are saying. But then I realized these guys come from Australia, they were taught by Ford, and they think that Adventism is actually what Ford taught them, as my mother taught me something, right? And I believe my mother and my pastors, they believe their pastors and Ford. And so I began to say, okay, there may be in Adventist, Adventism people that think very different. As a student, besides that, I had heretical teachers here at the seminary. One was teaching us and proving from the Bible that Christ was not God. Another assumed that the first creeds of the councils of the church, the Catholic church, were orthodox in what they take, in what they teach, and we should accept them. Others say that L. G. Y. was not inspired, that was a plagiarist. Others were saying that we cannot claim the remnant to be the remnant, etc., etc., so uh, things were not so perfect, but I thought that these were all weirdos. They didn't know better, and eventually they will come to know better. That's actually what I thought. So I was not concerned about that until I came in 1985, after two years of uh, being back in my country. They called me to teach at the seminary, and I began to see a lot of things that I didn't see before. When I came here, I thought, honestly, that all the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church were on the same page. All of them believe in the Sola Scriptura. All of them believe in Ellen G. White. This is what I assume. To be saved, we must keep the law. I mean, we have to be obedient, aren't we? Okay. So we are not saved because of that, but we, we have to keep the law. Otherwise, we are not going to go to heaven. The Bible says as, as much. We are the remnant church. We are the only true visible Christian church on earth. I assume everybody agrees with that. 
We agree on the norms of the church, guidance to practical daily life, diet, clothing, adornment, music, entertainment, etc., as an expression of the life of holiness of Christians in the world, which is obvious when you are um, actually reading the Bible. So all these things I assume that were there in the leadership of the church. It wasn't so. Many persons didn't believe in many of these things or any of these things, and they were Adventists, they were leaders, and they were just living their lives assuming that those things were not true. My understanding continued to be the same. We are one true church, but the evangelical are not the true church because of a few doctrines. God and theology are historical. Then when I began to to teach, I found some interesting things. Some students were hostile. When I am saying hostile, I am not saying that they were discussing things with me. But when we were, you know, kind of off class and I just passed by them, I want to say goodbye, they just will turn away and they will not uh, return my, my advances of greeting them. I said, this is very, very strange, you know. Gringos are private, but this is more than private, right? I mean, <laughs> you don't expect that. Everybody is very courteous. So hostile students, why they are hostile to me? I haven't given them bad grades. Later on, I understood what happened. I was giving them a vision of Adventism that was the vision that I had, but not the vision that they have. And I was telling them Adventism is like that, and they said, no, it's not like that, it's like this. <laughs> I didn't know that. It took me like 15 years to come to the realization, and then I changed completely my courses. So when the students came, I say, hey, listen, we are divided. And some things like this, and other things like this other thing, and other these things, and this thing. And th all those things are in the church. And you will have to be leaders in a church that thinks differently and is not united in what it thinks. And you will have to make a decision. I will explain to you why this is so, which is what I, basically I am going to do here at this seminary in a much, you know, general way. And then they, they, they began to greet me, and I didn't have any more hostile students. I just recognized that they came from a different place. They accepted that I wouldn't believe like they believe, but, uh, you know, things were different. And then the assurance of salvation, you know. The assurance of salvation uh, was another issue that was different. Then <coughs> worship renewal. Music, music that is popular music being used as worship. That was really something that I could not understand. There is another thing, evolution in Adventism. We have the worship renewal, sorry about that, and the evolution in Seventh-day Adventism. I came to learn that there are institutions and professors that actually believe that we Adventists should accept evolution as what really happened and deny Genesis. That was really something that blew my mind. How that could happen? What is that is behind this? 
This is not in the Bible. And the interesting thing is those things are condemned by the church, but people pay no attention to whatever the church condemned. They continue to think the way they think. And finally, ecumenism. Ecumenism is also embraced by many of us. We have to be one? Yes, we have to be one. But to be one means that everyone has to come under one Christian church, and we have to join ecumenism. There are not many persons that think like that among us, but there are many, many, and young generations are by default, I am going to explain that to you, believing on that. And so, questions to explore. Why and how were these things happening in the church? I am going to describe them in more detail tomorrow. Can we overcome present divisions? How deep are those divisions? On what basis can we claim to be the only true church? Was my assumption that we are just the true church because few doctrines, the correct way of understanding why we are the only true church? Is the unity of the church necessary? Certainly, I already proved that uh, even, even the Pope believes that it has to be. The difference between the Pope and me is that the Pope has a philosophical pattern to unite the Christians. Even the, the Protestants have a philosophical pattern for ecumenism, while we as Adventists have a biblical pattern that I will explain in my final presentation. Should we engage in ecumenism? What is the relationship between the unity and the mission of the church? I hope that you will be blessed and you will be reinforced in the search for the unity, the unity of the church, the unity of the church, the Seventh-day Adventist global church. I am not talking the Michigan Conference alone. I am talking our entire movement to enlighten, enlighten the entire world. And we should be not only as leaders, but only, uh, also as members of the church, instruments in the hands of God to work out that unity for the glory of God and the advancement of its mission. Let's uh, finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your guidance in our history, the history of the church and the history of our lives. Thank you for being a merciful God, a patient God that teaches us throughout our entire lives to come closer to you and to be every day more faithful. Transform our hearts change our minds, make us desireful of the good things and your law, and hasten your kingdom in justice. And when that day came, comes, please give us a part in your kingdom for your mercy and your merits. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.